Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. G'day guys, thanks for tuning in this week. Hope everyone had a happy Easter. I sure did. Uh, today I'm going to be talking about attachment theory. And attachment theory focuses on the relationships and the bonds, particularly long-term bonds between people, um, and including those between a parent and a child and between romantic partners. It's basically a psychological explanation for the emotional bonds and, and relationships between people. And this theory suggests that people are born with a need to forge bonds with caregivers slash parents, you know, when we're children. And these early bonds are going to continue to have an influence on our attachments throughout our life, right? So attachment theory, not to be mistaken for attachment styles, which is more like the non-scientific version of the same thing, that's where you're going to find um, like a, an online quiz or something, attachment styles, you know, in a woman's magazine will be attachment styles. So um, attachment theory is the scientific version with you know all the study and, and everything behind it but what can be a little bit confusing is that within attachment theory the you know the science-based version again we refer to the different types of attachments as attachment styles of which there are four okay so hopefully you'll learn enough so you'll be able to sort of get your head around this information and understand more about yourself and more about the way you were raised and how you interpret relationships with others, and just as importantly, the relationship that you have with yourself. This is very important information. So think about it this way. If you don't truly know and understand yourself, how do you expect anybody else to know and understand you? So I'll just quickly go into a bit of the history on attachment theory. Um, it was basically British psychologist Dr. John Balby um, he was basically the first attachment theorist. He described attachment as a lasting psychological connectedness between human beings. And Dr. Balby was interested in understanding the anxiety and the distress that children experience when they're separated from their primary caregivers. And, you know, thinkers like Sigmund Freud, for example, you know, the famous neurologist, he suggested that infants became attached to the source of pleasure. And infants who were in the oral stage of development became attached to the mothers because she fulfills their oral needs. So some of the earliest behavioral theories suggested that attachment was simply a learned behavior. And these theories proposed that attachment was merely the result of you know, the feeding relationship between the child and the caregiver. 
right? So because the caregiver feeds the child and provides nourishment, the child becomes attached. And Dr. Balby observed that feedings did not diminish the separation anxiety. Instead, he found that attachment was characterized by very clear behavioral and motivation patterns. So when children are frightened, they want to be in proximity from their primary caregiver in order to receive comfort, care, and protection. Essentially, attachment... Uh, look, attachment is its an emotional bond with another person. And Dr. Bowie believed that the earliest bonds formed by children with their caregivers have tremendous impact. Um, yeah, and that continues throughout the child's lifetime. He suggested that attachment also serves to keep the infant close to the mother, thus improving the child's chances of survival. And Dr. Balby viewed attachment as a product of evolutionary processes. So while the behavioral theories of attachment suggested that attachment was a learned process, and Dr. Balby and others proposed that children are born with this innate drive to form attachment with caregivers, right? So throughout history, children who maintained proximity to an attachment figure were more likely to receive comfort and protection, and therefore more likely to survive to adulthood. And what's super interesting is that through our process of, of you know, natural selection, a motivational system designed to regulate attachment has developed in our brains. And the, the central theme of attachment theory is that primary caregivers who are available and responsive to an infant's needs allow the child to develop a sense of security. So you know, new and future parents, if your baby cries, go to it immediately. It's not crying because it's bored and wants attention. It's crying because it's either frightened, it's in pain, it's hungry, etc. It's crying for a legitimate reason. And people who say that you should let your child cry itself to sleep, sadly, couldn't be more wrong. In fact, the reverse is actually true. Because when you go to a crying child every time, the baby learns the mechanisms to enable it to soothe and comfort itself. That is much better for the baby and for the parent because when the baby learns the techniques to calm itself down, the parents aren't getting up 50 times a night, so they sleep better. And as you all know from episode one on sleep, the cornerstone of health and happiness is good, consistent sleep. So without sleep, everything suffers, right? Even if it isn't immediate, immediately obvious to you, it's, it's still going to have an effect, okay? So babies, babies don't have the cognitive ability to manipulate their parents. So when they are crying, they're in need of something. And very often, it's just simply comfort. They just want to be held to feel safe. So then the infant learns that the caregiver is dependable, which creates a source space for the child to then go out and you know explore the world. So what, what essentially determines a successful attachment? All behaviorists have suggested that it was food that led to forming this attachment behavior, but Dr. Balby and others have demonstrated that nurturing and responsiveness were the primary you know, determinants of attachment. And uh, Dr. Mary Ainsworth, she did research in the 70s. She was a psychologist, and she expanded quite a bit upon Dr. Balby's original work. And um, her groundbreaking, you know, quote unquote, strange situation study revealed the profound effects of attachment on behavior. And in the study, researchers observed children between the ages of 12 and 18 months as they responded to a situation in which they were briefly left alone and then reunited with their mothers. And based on the responses of the researchers observed, Ainsworth described three major styles of attachment 
which were secure attachment, ambivalent insecure attachment, and avoidant insecure attachment. And later researchers, uh, Main and Solomon in 1986, added a fourth attachment style called disorganized insecure attachment based on their own research. Right, so a number of studies since that time have supported Ainsworth attachment styles and have indicated that attachment styles also have an impact on behaviours later in life. There were some fairly infamous you know, maternal deprivation studies done um, and, and you know, social isolation during the 50s and 60s, and they also explored early bonds. Um, in a series of experiments, it was determined how these bonds emerge and, and the powerful impact that they have on behavior and functioning. In one version of this experiment, newborn rhesus monkeys were separated from their birth mothers and reared by surrogate mothers. And essentially, these surrogate mothers, if that's what you want to call them, they'll basically just wire monkeys, like a bunch of mesh with you know a couple of eyes, and uh, one of the one of the wire monkeys held a bottle, and that's where the infant monkey could get nourishment and food, while the other wire monkey was covered in a soft cloth. So while the infant monkeys would go to the wire mother to obtain food, they spent most of their days with the soft cloth mother. So when they were frightened, the baby monkeys would turn to their cloth-covered mother for comfort and security. And this work also demonstrated that early attachments were the result of receiving comfort and care from a caregiver rather than simply being fed. Okay, so um, I want to go into the stages of attack. Well, firstly, researchers analyzed the number of attachment relationships that infants form in a longitudinal study of 60 infants. In a longitudinal study, subjects are followed over a period of time with continuous or repeated monitoring for either whatever it is, you know, risk factors or health outcomes or whatever, you know, the study is, is doing. So the infants were observed um, every four weeks during the first year of life and then again at, at the 18-month point. And based on their observations, it was found that four distinct phases of attachment exist, including um, pre-attachment, and that is essentially from birth to three months of age where infants don't show any particular attachment to a caregiver. You know, the infant's uh, signals like crying and fussing, they naturally attract the attention of the caregiver and the baby's positive responses encourage the caregiver to remain close, right? So that's how we've evolved. Then there's like a, an indiscriminate attachment, which is between six weeks of age and seven months. And at this stage, infants begin to show a preference for a primary and a secondary caregiver. So infants develop trust that the caregiver will respond to their needs, right? So while they still accept care from others, infants start distinguishing between familiar and unfamiliar people and responding more positively to the primary caregiver. Okay, so then there's discriminant attachment, which is at about the 7 to 11 month point. Uh, infants show a strong attachment and a preference for one specific individual. They will protest when they're separated from their primary attachment figure, and that's called separation anxiety, which most of us are very familiar with. And begin to, they also begin to display anxiety around strangers, right? So then there's multiple attachments. So after approximately nine months of age, children begin to form strong emotional bonds with other caregivers beyond the primary attachment figure. And this will often include a second parent, older siblings, grandparents, and it will generally include anyone who is in regular contact with the child, right? So 
While this process may seem straightforward, there are some factors that can influence how and when attachments develop, and, and that includes things like opportunity for attachment. Children who don't have a primary care figure, such as those raised in orphanages or fail to develop a sense of trust needed to form an attachment, right? Then there's quality caregiving. When, when caregivers respond quickly and consistently, children learn that they can depend on people who are going to be responsible for their care, which is essentially the foundation for attachment. You know, this is a vital and very crucial factor, right? And, and the lasting impact on attachment is when children who are securely attached as infants, they tend to develop stronger self-esteem and, and better self-reliance as they grow older. And these children also tend to be more independent. They perform better in school. They have successful social relationships and experience less depression and less anxiety. So research suggests that failure to form secure attachments early in life can have a really negative impact on behavior in later childhood and throughout the rest of your life. So um, you know, when, when children are diagnosed with something called uh, oppositional defiant disorder or ODD, um, or conduct disorder, otherwise known as CD, or something that a lot of us have probably heard of, post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD. These, these children frequently display attachment problems, and that's possibly due to either early abuse or neglect or some form of trauma. And children you know, adopted after the age of six months have a higher risk of attachment problems. In some cases, children may also develop attachment disorders. So what are some of the attachment disorders that can manifest? There are essentially two disorders that can occur, reactive attachment disorder, RAD, and disinhibited social engagement disorder, DSED. So reactive attachment disorder occurs when children don't form healthy bonds with caregivers, and this is often the result of early childhood neglect or abuse and results in problems with emotional management and patterns of withdrawal from caregivers. So... Disinhibited social engagement disorder, that affects a child's ability to form bonds with others and often results from trauma, abandonment, abuse or neglect. It's characterized by a lack of inhibition around strangers and that is often leading to excessively familiar behaviors around people they don't even know and you know, they have a real lack of social boundaries. All right, so I just want to quickly, before we get into the, the attachment styles, I want to get, I just want to have a quick squeeze at um, attachment in adults okay so although attachment displayed in adulthood are not necessarily the same as those seen in infancy early attachments can have a serious impact on later relationships okay so adults who were securely attached in childhood tend to have good self-esteem good self-esteem strong romantic relationships and connections and they have the ability to self-disclose to others okay so the four, the four patterns of attachment include disorganized attachment. So uh, these children display a confusing mix of behavior. They're seemingly disoriented, dazed or confused. They may avoid or resist the parent. And a lack of clear attachment pattern is likely linked to inconsistent caregiver behavior. So in these cases, parents might serve as both a source of comfort and fear, leading to disorganized behavior and disorganized attachment. Now, disorganized attachment is quite common in children that have been abandoned or abused. So because this is such an extreme attachment, I think most specialists would recommend that they be in therapy for this. Therapy is going to be very helpful 
to help them come to terms with and understand why they feel the way they feel and, and why they're having all these issues in their life. It's by far the most serious and unhealthy attachment style of all attachments, and it's up to 20% of the population who are going to fit into that category um, of disorganized. But having said that, it, it's I mean, the really serious cases are probably closer to about 10% of the population. Okay, so essentially, these people who have disorganized attachment have a huge difficulty dealing with and managing their emotions. They've not had the type of upbringing that was conducive to forming a strategy to manage these emotions. So these kids, they don't really avoid, they don't really create a huge drama, but they also have no idea on how to settle themselves down. And you know this normally happens when the child is very stressed out, when they feel rejected by the parents, or at least you know, by their primary caregiver. So it's a massive downpour of rejection. So the parent isn't explaining that they're stressed out. So the child doesn't know what to do. So, you know, maybe then the child starts crying. Then the parents start arguing or fighting and, and that scares the child. And because they don't have the coping mechanisms to deal with the situation where the parents are either scared or scary. So without a solution to repair the relationship after one of these events, it's likely to lead to a disorganized attachment in the child. So importantly, very importantly, it can be changed. But that child or that adult will have to go to therapy. And I would imagine the parents would need to be involved if the therapy started when they were children. Because if the child is in therapy, but the home life doesn't improve, it would be very difficult, if even possible, to change your attachment style. Right, so this is also really common with parents that have experienced trauma or have drug or alcohol addiction. So it, it's really quite common in, in, that, in those populations of people. Okay, now people with disorganized attachment are far more vulnerable to mental health conditions and, and in particular anxiety disorders and attention disorders, things like depression and chronic stress and, and throughout their entire lives, right? Lower IQs are likely because when you have chronic anxiety, especially throughout childhood and adolescence, attention disorders and depression, all of those things contribute to a lower IQ because you're not consolidating your memories properly and you're not forming memories properly, right? You're not able to pay attention the way that your, your peers or your classmates are paying attention. You're unable to go through your school in a healthy way like your classmates, so your IQ is you know, almost certainly going to be affected. So what does it mean for you in your relationships if you are somebody with disorganized attachment style? These people will often accept abusive relationships in their life because they see abuse, this kind of relationship, but even though it's abusive, they still see it as love. So one day the partner could be loving and affectionate, and the next day it could be you know, abusive screaming or even physical abuse. But a person who has a disorganized attachment style won't recognize this kind of relationship as abuse. They'll make excuses and, and they'll be saying things like, oh, that's, that's just how they are. Um, the reason they yell at me or the reason they hit me is because they love me so much that it tears them apart when I do the wrong thing. So this kind of abusive relationship is acceptable to them because as children, that type of behavior is what their internal working model was based on. So now it is hopefully a bit clearer as to why some people stay in these abusive relationships. It's, you know, and, and it's not fair to judge or ridicule them because they choose to stay in an abusive relationship. This is normal for them, no matter how toxic it is or how toxic it seems to be from the perspective of others, it's still what they regard as normal. Now, they know not every relationship is like that, 
but the way they interpret what they see in the relationship of others, it, it's just a different kind of normal. And this behavior has been instilled in them when they were children and, and even babies. So now um, you know, they know there are different ways people engage each other in their respective relationships, but the abusive relationship that they find themselves in, in their mind, is just one of the ways a partner can show love and affection. So people with addictive pathways and and addictive behaviors and all those other mental health problems, when they have children of their own, it's likely, not guaranteed, but it's far more likely that these people will then repeat history with their own children and the cycle continues. So this is why it's so important if you're disorganized attachment to try and change your attachment style with the help of a professional. And I say this from the perspective that you're an adult now, okay? If you're a child now, obviously that's a different story. So you might think, you know, a a lot of this sounds like you, but you think back to your childhood and it wasn't necessarily massive amounts of verbal or physical, physical abuse, but there's a fairly high probability that there was some form of trauma. You know, uh, you, you might have been in the foster care system just being shuffled from one family to another and, and never really have, having the time or ability to, you know, form connections with, you know, any one carer and certainly not forming a you know, healthy attachment. Um, this sort of upbringing is very inconsistent because every family that, they've, that they go to or they're, you know, being sent to, it has a different vibe and a different dynamic. So books or research online might give you information, but you really need a professional to get to the root of the problem because no two people are going to have the same childhood experiences with regard to how they were raised in a negative environment. So if you know someone that fits in this category, be supportive without being judgmental and, and encourage professional intervention because this isn't the sort of thing that you're going to be able to change on your own. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. 
Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. All right, let's go into ambivalent attachment. These children become very distressed when a parent leaves. Ambivalent attachment type is considered fairly uncommon. Uh, as a result of poor parental availability, availability, these children can't depend on their primary caregiver to be there when they need them. And ambivalent attachment style is sometimes called ambivalent coercive attachment style, and that is up to 15% of the population. So this attachment is essentially where the parent is a bit more responsive, but they're also quite inconsistent. So interactions between the child and the parent can be really loving and close, but then it can also be quite intrusive and, and sometimes over-attentive. And people refer to this type of behavior from the parent or carer as helicopter parenting. And this is where the parent is constantly checking on the child, hovering around like a helicopter, always making you know suggestions instead of letting them use their own creativity. So imagine a child is playing with blocks, right? They're building something, and you know the parent comes over. What are you doing? What are you doing? Oh, maybe you should do it this way. And, you know, and they're shoving blocks in their child's hand. And they're fussing over. Them. They're being really overbearing. You need to be allowing your kids time to formulate their own creative freedom instead of checking up on them and asking them what they're doing every other minute, right? Let them be and wait for them to ask for your opinion rather than smothering them with your perspective and your ideas, right? Whereas a parent with a secure attachment, which I'll get into later, they will often try and wait for the child to come up and and show the parent the work being like, oh, look what I just made. And then you can comment, oh, that's great, well done. So you've allowed the child's creativity to expand without an overbearing and intrusive sense of the parents looking over their shoulders constantly, right? This helicopter style of parenting can be extremely dissatisfying for not only the child, but the parent as well, because the inconsistencies of sometimes being loved and being cared for and other times just being really annoyed and frustrated. So because the child is used to this sort of overbearing caring, then they're like, oh, I need you now. And and they ask you the same questions over and over. And that's how the the relation develops into this sort of uncomfortable, dissatisfying back and forth between the parent and the child. So the child gets more attention, the more fuss they make. And they've learned this behavior because the parent was constantly making a fuss over the child about every little thing. So instead of simply asking for help or requesting attention, the child will make this huge drama and they might even throw a, a complete you know, tantrum over absolutely nothing and just melt down because then the parent gets frustrated. They might lose their temper and then because they've lost their temper, the child gets upset and then the whole family dynamic can be affected by it. So you know, then the parent feels guilty and the child is upset you know, because they lost their temper and then they do the repair and they hug the child. So it's it's not too serious or damaging and it's not, you know, super toxic, but it can be really, really frustrating because everyone involved is missing that to and fro of communication. It, it's always a little bit hit and miss. So when the child wants the attention, the the parents aren't there. And when the child doesn't want the attention, the parents are too overbearing, Right. So throughout this episode, I'm going to be saying parents, I'm going to be saying caregiver. It's all the same thing, okay? 
Right, so in the end, you end up with a cycle of anger and frustration because the child gets frustrated, then the parent gets frustrated, and then the child cries, so it's a bit of drama, but it's not that damaging to the child. So this is not a damaging thing because the child is getting the attention and there is love for the child, right? Um, and overall, the child does have and understand that their parents love them, but the problem is that this sort of parenting creates is that the child becomes extremely needy. So when the child starts school, they are really needy with their teacher. And no matter how much attention is given to the child, they remain needy because the root of the problem is their home life, which hasn't changed. Now, because the child isn't improving in the classroom and despite all the extra attention, now the teacher gets frustrated. And even though they don't express this frustration to the child, the child does realize that they aren't getting the same amount of attention that they were getting before. So now the child feels abandoned because the teacher is spreading their time out between all the students. So now, what does the child do? They start causing drama in order to get the attention that they want or the attention that they need. And they probably won't have a good handle on controlling their emotions and their behavior because they are so emotional. So instead of avoiding the teacher, the child will stick to them like glue because they constantly need to be reassured for fear of abandonment, basically, right? So when the child grows up and starts dating, they remain needy within the relationship. These are the people who are always needing reassurance, always keeping tabs on their partner and have a general ongoing feeling of, you know, whether or not you know their, their partner can be trusted. There is a ton of insecurities present and eventually the other partner breaks it off because the constant up and down of emotions is just too much. Having to constantly reassure their partner is exhausting and the relationship for the most part is really quite unenjoyable. So again, the feeling of abandonment creeps in and the next relationship they're scared you'll break it off. So they cling to you. And because they're so insecure, they don't want you going out or doing anything with, without them. They, you know, If you're going out with someone else, it's a big drama. So now the new partner is starting to feel really suffocated. And again, the relationship is unenjoyable. So it doesn't last, obviously. And, you know, and on and on the cycle goes. So now we're going to go into insecure slash avoidant attachment. These children with an avoidant attachment tend to avoid parents or caregivers, not really showing a preference between a caregiver or a complete stranger, right? This attachment type might be the result of abusive or neglectful carers. Um, children who are punished for relying on a caregiver will learn to avoid seeking help in the future, right? You might ask for help You're, and, and you know, you know, your parent yells at you because they're busy doing something else, for example. This is the second most common attachment that you're gonna see. And basically this is where there are inconsistencies with what the child will experience from their parents, okay? Often this happens if the parent is not in tune with what the child wants. And this is really common with a lot of people who have just been parented that way. So that's what they know. So they parent the same way, all right? So now I, I, I don't want you to take on the attitude like, oh, you know, how great is this? Now now I can blame all my issues on my parents who didn't raise me 100% the correct way. That's not what this is about, right? I mean, if you know, if you want, you can go off and have that conversation with your parents and, and dredge all this up, you know, and, and demonstrate and explain to them how they didn't raise you correctly. But it won't actually change the past. And there is a real possibility that the relationship you have now with your parents could be compromised or even deteriorate, right? So, you know, because at the end of the day, if, if you're going to blame your parents for the way they raised you, then they can blame their parents for the way they raised them. And, you know, the, the, the blame game just keeps going back. 
right? So because in most cases, the parenting style your parents used was more likely what they experienced as a child, they're simply parenting the way they were parented. And realistically, again, in most cases, they were probably doing their best, okay? So let's not play the blame game because pointing the finger won't actually help you. It just opens the door for potential damage to your existing relationship with your parents now, right? So, you know, this information, it, it's to help you identify your attachment style so you better understand yourself and you feel more empowered, right? There, there's going to be up to 30% of the population that have a um, have an insecure avoidant attachment. And these, these will have the parents that will be cool with you doing something or saying something or behaving a certain way. And then some other day when you're doing the exact same thing, they explode. Right? These are often the parents who will let their child cry for an unreasonable amount of time. And because of that, the child feels unsupported because they feel like they, you know, they need their caregiver or parent. They're not there for them. So this type of inconsistent parenting teaches the child that they can't rely on their parents for support, or at least when they feel they need it. So now I need to do everything for myself because I can't rely on anyone. That's how the child's going to see it. So when a child feels this way, it can manifest into a rebellious streak because they can't rely on their parents because sometimes they'll get support, but other times they just get yelled at. So now the child thinks, I need to take control of my own destiny, so to speak, right? And and this is the time when the child is going to seek out other children that they can relate to. So other children who have parenting issues, for example, or you know, possibly not the best home life. And this is how your child can end up hanging out with the quote-unquote wrong crowd, right now these parents you know the way the, the way they parent is not malicious okay very often they are good carers and yes they love you there is affection and you know it's not abusive parenting style but it's inconsistency within the parenting and you know there's not enough back and forth there's not enough you know talk where the parent tries to get the child to open up in order to understand the child and, and you know what they're going through right so yeah, and, and if the, the child speaks up and tries to explain something and the parent shuts them down, you know, and the kind of attitude that, you know, I'm the adult, now do what I say, your child, your opinion doesn't matter. There are parents who don't agree with apologizing to a child, even if they deserve an apology, right? When a parent apologizes to a child, that can have a profound effect and, and be a profound moment for the child. And this type of parenting has created a lot of insecure attachments and yet this sad, old, dated concept that you should never have to apologize to a child. If you want children who will be responsible and to accept responsibility for their actions, you need to teach them that it's okay to apologize. This type of parenting is teaching your kids that everything is inconsistent you know, through their observed behavior. They don't know what to expect from you, so they stop seeking support. So insecure avoidance are likely to think along the lines like, um, I can't rely on anyone. The world is basically a negative place. And when it comes to relationships, I better screw them over before they screw me over because that's just how people are. Every man for themselves kind of an outlook, right? So, you know, just, just say you're at school or you're at work or you could just be out in public and, and someone accidentally bumps into you. Insecure avoidance will probably think the worst. They will think it was deliberate. Yeah, and they may or may not react in the moment, but I guarantee they'll be stewing over it for ages. Whereas a secure attachment type will be like, oops, sorry, and they move on with the day and they don't give it a second thought. So I guess be wary when entering new relationships if the person says something like, you know, I've been hurt in the past, so you need to earn my trust. 
you know, that kind of deal. That's a red flag because their internal working model, which we all have, by the way, is telling them that everyone gets screwed over. So inevitably, when something does go sideways, they immediately have this, you know, aha moment where they're like, I knew something like this would happen. I knew they would screw me over. And that thought process is like saying, um, you know, it's going to rain. And every day it's going to rain. It's going to rain. Every day it's going to rain. It's going to rain. Eventually, it's going to bloody well rain, right? So just like a self-fulfilling prophecy, I knew it would rain. I knew they would screw me over. Okay, so... Now we're going into secure attachment, and this is the ideal attachment. And children who can depend on their caregivers, you know, show distress when they're separated, and they also show joy when they're reunited. And although the child may be upset, they feel assured that the caregiver will return, right? When they're frightened, securely attached children are comfortable seeking reassurance from caregivers. And this, thankfully, is the most common attachment style. So in order to have a secure attachment, it only takes one caregiver. If one parent is always there, always providing consistent care, providing secure attachment, and the other parent is all over the shop, you know, sometimes they're there, sometimes they're too stressed to deal with the child, the child can still develop a secure attachment as long as the parent who's always there is the main primary caregiver slash parent. So the child's attachment is modeled based on what they see all the time, okay? So, you know, obviously that makes sense, right? So the attachment is based on how much attention the child is getting. If the parent or caregiver always goes to the child when it cries, or if they're always available if the child is hurt or scared, that type of parenting is the style that will help your child develop a secure attachment. Right? If you're at the beach and the kid wanders down to the water's edge, you know, if they turn around and see the parent watching, that gives them confidence to go a little bit further and explore because they know that the parent is watching over them, they feel safe and they feel protected. So they might take a few more steps and, you know, and now when the waves come in, their feet get wet. And slowly, over time, the child will learn to separate themselves from the parent but they still feel safe because they know that the parents are there as, as a kind of a backup, right? So next time, they might wander a little further away. You know, they might walk, you know, maybe they'll get their ankle. I don't know if that's the best example being at the beach, but basically they still feel safe because they can look back and they can see their parents and they know that their parents are are watching them and they're going to be there for support and, and to protect them, right? So, you know, you want to give off the vibe that you encourage exploration and you encourage adventure. So as they grow into teenagers, they are ready or at least better mentally prepared for what life throws their way as they edge closer to adulthood. And remembering, you know, that curiosity and adventure, it's hardwired into our brains. So kids tend to wander around because they're curious and they want to learn. Now, there are still people in this day and age who think that you're spoiling a baby or creating some sort of dysfunctional monster if you go to the baby every time it cries. First of all, I mean, I can't even tell you how ridiculous that is, but first of all, it's impossible to spoil a baby. Until the age of at least five, children don't understand manipulation. It's not possible for a baby or a child under five to manipulate their parents. If it feels that way, if it feels like that's happening, it's only because the child or the baby is repeating behavior that worked in the past and, and you know, to essentially get what they needed. They simply don't have the cognitive development or ability to form these kinds of executive thoughts. Now, having said that, the, you know, the parent doesn't have to be literally perfect all the time. 
If the child wants or needs the parent and they're not available because maybe they've got you know three boiling pots on the stove preparing dinner, or there might be other siblings who are in greater need of attention at that moment, that's okay if it only happens every now and then. So long as the parent or caregiver goes back to the child later and explains or even apologizes if they're old enough to understand, but particularly with babies, they hold the baby, they make eye contact and they comfort the baby. They do the repair to the relationship. That's absolutely fine. Nobody's going to be the perfect parent 100% of the time. And also, I mean, it, it's it's totally correct to apologize to a child if required. That old school notion of, you know, respect your elders, I'm right because I'm an adult. Sure, respect your elders, but they need to be showing you respect as well because respect is a two-way street. And when you apologize to your child, you're teaching them to take responsibility for their actions. And you're also simultaneously repairing the relationship. So the general idea is to give your kids the freedom to explore whilst keeping an eye on them and wait for them to come to you. When they do, you make the time and you're there for them. You're there to support them. You don't hover over them, asking them what they're doing every five minutes. Um, you know, maybe you should do this. Maybe you should do that. Constantly making suggestions. If they're playing at home, whatever they're doing, don't make suggestions to what they're doing unless they ask for it. And again, Wait for them to ask for your opinion without giving it to them every five minutes. If you're always anxiously fussing over every little thing, always checking what your child is doing and providing unrequested feedback, that is what will be fearful for the child. That will create a more insecure attachment. So ultimately, the message you should be sending to your children is that I'm here for you and you're worth it no matter what. Even if something goes wrong where I might not be available, I might let you down in that moment, you know that I am here for you and that you're worth it. Occasionally, I can sit down and have the repair with you and you're going to understand that there was a reason why I ignored you at that moment or a reason why I yelled at you. And the child won't really be affected by that, right? They, they, they could get a bit annoyed, but you know, they, they generally don't because they've got enough of a concept that people generally are there for them and you know because they've developed this strong foundation and this goes on to be the basis for all kinds of intimate relationships for them in the future open and direct communication this is where the child learns to say i'm unhappy about this or i am happy about this or i don't like this so as an adult if you can achieve this level of communication with your partner you'll be free to discuss anything openly which is way more healthy and yeah and this ability to be open as well it all comes from your childhood and and which is why it's so damn important Okay, so in conclusion, our understanding of attachment theory is heavily influenced by the early work of researchers like John Balby and Mary Ainsworth, and today researchers recognize that the early relationships children have with their caregivers play a critical role in health development. And you know, and these bonds can also, and, and probably will, have an influence on romantic relationships in adulthood, right? So understanding your attachment style may help you look for ways to become more secure in, in your relationships. And understanding why you are the way you are can have massive benefits in navigating your relationships with your friends, your family, and your romantic, romantic partners, right? Um, I've done various episodes on toxic people and ways to identify and deal with narcissists and other negative people. So I thought it would be important to do this episode to hopefully shine a light on when we are potentially the problem. Because often we look for someone to blame, especially in relationship conflicts. And now, hopefully armed with this knowledge on attachment theory, it's a way we can self-analyze our own knowledge and improvement. 
And it's another method we can use to improve ourselves, our lives, and the lives of those people who are important to us. Because I'm assuming that if you're listening, and I mean, it could just be out of interest, I recognize that. But also, I'd like to think that you know people listening here are looking to improve their lives and the lives of the people that you interact with and connect with. Growth relies on a handful of things, but self-acceptance is critical. In other words, if you screw something up, if you break something, if you want to do anything that can be seen as negative, own up to it, cop it on the chin, take responsibility for your actions, and apologize if required, and move on. It's very, very simple. We've all been in situations where we know someone has lied, and even under a mountain of evidence, they cling to this ridiculous lie, a lie that everyone is aware of, but they just can't be honest about it and they can't apologize and move on. It's just not in them to do it. And I feel so sorry for these people because those people aren't hanging on to one lie. It's probably dozens. And imagine every one of those little lies is like a little anchor around your neck. Imagine living like that, having all that shit piled up and weighing you down every day. I mean, I'll give you an example of how things could have gone another way with me. One of my casual clients has the world's tightest and steepest driveway, and and the entree to that is the world's skinniest street. In fact, it's one of those little paved streets. Um, I don't know if this happens Australia-wide or if it's just a Sydney thing or New South Wales thing, but that's my dog shaking. What? Can you wait? I'm doing a podcast. Right, so where was I? Um, yeah, so imagine every one of those lies is like a little anchor around your neck and, and living like that must be a nightmare, having all that shit piled up, weighing you down every day, right? So here's the example, right? Something that happened to me in real life. As I was saying, the world's tightest driveway, really skinny street, little paved street that sort of continues at the end of a cul-de-sac, right? It's like a little private road, but they're always super skinny. You can barely get down. Anyway, you when I get to my client, it's basically a 90 degree turn and it's super tight. I'm in a work van, it's a long van, you know, so I'm doing my usual 75 point turn to get out of there and I just clipped a terracotta planting pot. I didn't feel it, I didn't even notice, but when I backed up, I saw it was broken and I was pretty sure it wasn't broken before. So I get out, I take a photo of it, I send it to the owner apologizing and offering to pay for it. They said, no probs, don't worry about it honesty, right? So let's look at it from another perspective. If they came home to a broken terra pot with no explanation or apology, what do you think their demeanor would be? Do you think they would still be chill and cool about it? Nope. They're going to be pissed and for good reason. We sometimes forget that people are reasonable for the most part. They understand that mistakes get made from time to time and you know, if you can just summon the courage to accept responsibility, it feels really, really good, right? So that's it for this episode. Hopefully you have enough knowledge to work out what attachment you've developed and hopefully understanding yourself a little bit better now will help you be a better person and help to enrich your relationships, right? Thanks for listening. Um, If you have time to rate and review, obviously I'd love that. And of course, please share the pod with your friends and family, your classmates, your co-workers, anyone you know. And if you think that they can get some value out of the episode, um, you know, send it off to them, send them a link, just enlighten them about it. Um, Yeah, even if you just think they just might be interested in the podcast content and not necessarily need 
help, whatever. Um, if you know if you can put a link on your socials, that would be awesome. And if you want, you can email me at any time. Um, if you've got episode suggestions, I've had we've, we've done one episode so far that was a suggestion from someone. Um, that was cognitive dissonance. Um, that was a good episode. So, you know, if if you want to just say hi, you can shoot me off an email. Love it. Um, and you know, and if you've got any suggestions on how I could be doing things better or whatever, by all means, tell me. You know. I, I might not agree with your comments, but at the end of the day, I still appreciate you, you know, giving me your opinion, right? I value the opinion of everyone, especially my listeners. So, you know, don't be concerned with emailing me your thoughts. The podcast email address is improvemepodcast at outlook.com. And as always, try to imitate my blood type and be positive. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait. Is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. Now, because we live in a litigious world where some people refuse to take responsibility for their own actions and are always looking for someone else to blame, I'm forced to remind you that this podcast is for knowledge and entertainment purposes only. Always consult a qualified professional before taking any health, psychological, pharmaceutical, mental or physical advice. Never rely on information from a podcast.